2: Back with an all-new Keep It, I am Ira Madison the third. I am Louis Fertel, still.
3: And I am Aida Osman, the first, the only.
2: And the last.
3: <laughs> you know what? Gen Z. This is letter Z for a reason. There's no after us. <laughs> I'm fairly certain.
0: We don't get into,
2: like, lowercase a, lowercase a after that?
3: I no. know. No, no, no. There's no double letters. It's not like batteries. It's just death. <laughs> I want to
2: start out this episode by talking about a... National nightmare of mine, which is now over.
4: Mm -hmm.
2: Which is? I have been living in pain and turmoil during this pandemic. Truly the only pain and turmoil that anyone has experienced, yes? Yes, um, yes, of course. It has been impossible in Los Angeles to find Coke Zero.
3: Oh, my God. And not just
2: Coke Zero, but Cherry Coke Zero. And that was just a drink of mine that we used to drink in the writer's room all the time. Mm -hmm. And then I would have it in my fridge all the time. But then they just vanished. They completely vanished from grocery stores. You couldn't even find it on that evil app Amazon. Like, it's no more.
0: My thing about soda, which I instinctively want to call pop due to my trash Midwest roots. I bet you but call all it of pop. Us. Yeah, right. All, all three of us. We're all pop people, right? Um, I drank it every day. I would have it in my dorm fridge. I was obsessed with Dr. Pepper. And then I, my best girlfriend, Jessica, one day she goes, you know, I don't drink pop. And then I said oh, maybe I won't get it this one time we went to a restaurant, and I have not had it since.
3: Ooh. So you are very influenced by the words of others. I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds (laughs) like a thing. It's
0: not a good read on me. I'm not saying I advertise this, but yeah.
2: It's Jessica, like, Pusher from X-Files. She was like, no, (laughs) no more pop for you. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I fucking guess. I used to be obsessed with it. I would say it was part of my brand, drinking Dr. Pepper all the time.
3: I appreciate a fizzy drink. However, mm-hmm. I have re- I have replaced them all with a LaCroix, a seltzer, even like a vive, something that is just carbonated, but not Coke Zero, which tastes like crude oil, in okay, my opinion. First of Ira.
2: all, vive is alcohol. Okay, so... All right, Girl, so. you, over
3: here, you over here drinking battery acid, judging me. I sure what? am.
2: <laughs> I sure am. Because you know what? Diet Coke is disgusting. It is. That I can attest to. Coke too. Zero is it. But Cherry Coke Zero is extra it. Anyway, I found it at <laughs> a store in Los Angeles. I'm not going to tell where. But I bought a lot of cases.
3: Like a pallet's worth? I will tell our listeners you're drinking one right now. So it couldn't it have been I'm drinking too drinking a Coke difficult. Zero.
0: Yeah. And you know, by the way, we shoot this at six fifteen AM, so it's
3: actually yeah. pretty strange. It's odd. <laughs> I'm glad you found them. Thank you. Rejuvenated. I'm very happy for you. I do
2: feel rejuvenated, you know? Like, new me.
3: Well, I will also say that because you had access to them in the writer's room, probably endless access, the way I did to Yerba Mate, which I was drinking, like, water when I Mm. was in the last writer's room, and now, because I'm not going to spend $3 on a can of caffeinated tea, now I just can't drink Yerba, and I just miss the perks of the writer's room. I miss Crafty. I miss miss a free drink.
0: Oh, God, me too. No, I definitely miss, like, (sighs) a, a packet of goldfish. I definitely miss like like individual morsels of fruit snacks.
3: Girl, we had salmon jerky. Have you ever even heard those two words put together? What the fuck? Every day. Are every you Robin
0: Leach? Who the fuck eats <laughs> salmon jerky?
2: Delicious. The goldfish makes me miss the Crooked Offices because they just had like goldfish in the pantry. The Crooked Office notoriously has bad snacks.
3: But they had the Babybel cheeses. They did the have the Babybel cheeses. cheeses.
2: Yeah. And right. they
3: also yeah, they had that and they had, you know, the endless coffee, the Keurig. I was I was messing it up in the little keep it cups. So many cups of coffee.
0: Yeah. It was very much an apples situation for me. Is what I off, was what I remember about the crooked kitchen. So, mm-hmm. maybe
2: we'll be back there one day, who knows. <laughs> that is just reminding me of the one piece of humor interaction that is gone from I think our lives now. So much is so when I cuz when I was writing on the show it went straight to Zoom halfway through. Um, oh. But other people are, who are starting jobs on Zoom or any other job you're doing, like, on the Internet, you miss that human interaction of, like, learning when you can bond with a coworker. I'm going to go get some coffee. And you give them, like, a look to let them know that, like, this is a coffee conversation that is going to be us spilling tea. Mm. And then they come with you, you know? And mm-hmm. I, I don't know how you form that bond if you're only meeting people for the first time on, like a computer screen, you know? Because everyone's no, right? staring at the same thing and everyone, you, there's no way to really gauge like people's reactions to something.
3: The equivalent of a water cooler conversation is Zoom private chat, which right. I've been using to bond with certain coworkers. But then, as, as you can see everyone's face all Brady Bunch style. So mm-hmm. if two people are giggling out of, out of nowhere, it's very obvious that we're in the private chat talking our shit. So we have to be very wary when you do that method.
0: That's yeah. so interesting because the show I write on, we don't use Zoom. We just do email assignments. Mm-hmm. And writers, I feel like, like unwinding together. You know, there's something mm-hmm. about, like, putting a lot of creativity in something for a couple hours and then taking, whatever, 15 minutes to not do anything. And, like, we used to play Jeopardy all the time. We used to play Boggle all the time. And I miss those things. Those are the things that, like, recharge you and then make you funny again.
3: Is there any social interaction occurring in your writer's room right now? Are you doing everything by yourself?
0: Everything everything by myself. We're all isolated, yeah.
3: That's absolutely terrifying, Louis. Mm-hmm. I'm so sorry.
0: I know. <laughs> no, also it's like, I bring this up a lot, but again, reach out to the extroverts in your life. My God. You know I'm giving I'm like reciting cat on a hot tin roof monologues to the fucking window.
2: <laughs> the no-neck monsters. <laughs> I'm an all-neck monster.
0: It makes it
2: difficult. <laughs> Somebody go say hello to Lewis. You know, Big Daddy wouldn't be happy if nobody said hello to <laughs> Lewis. What with everything that's been going on all summer.
0: <laughs> Pardon me for igniting
2: Ira in exactly <laughs> no, his, okay. his pleasure chakra. So. Well, let me tell you, we have got quite the episode for you all listening out there today. <laughs> uh, no, we have two guests again this week. Legends. Icons. Unspeakably legendary.
3: Yeah, lucky, y'all.
2: And once again, they are the moment, as they have been for decades in their career. Um, we are talking about Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara joining Lewis and I on the pod today.
3: Lucky, lucky. Just just take a screenshot of his of his eyebrows for me and text them, please. That's all I need to see. Please. My favorite aspect of his entire face.
0: Oh, Eugene Levy, his eyebrows, they belong on characters from the game Guess Who? <laughs>
2: <laughs> also, Eugene Levy has that um, gift of an older man who has aged into someone hotter.
0: Yes.
4: Uh, Cause
2: I've looked at American Pie recently, which I'm gonna talk to him about, but like of course uh, him in American Pie versus him on Schitt's Creek now, like that gray hair now, and it's slicked back. That man is sexy. Mm-hmm.
3: I have to give it to him. I feel
0: like eyebrows are a big, important factor of men getting older. Like, they, mm-hmm. there's something that like settles into a face about a giant, prominent eyebrow.
2: Peter Gallagher.
0: There we go, yeah. Rod Serling from The Twilight Zone, one of the hotties of all time, as far as I'm concerned.
2: Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, and also, this makes... Finally, all of the Rose family from Shits Creek will have been on Keep It. It really is. Is crazy. this it? This is the yeah.
3: final this is the final one? The final two. Oh, there you go.
2: I think also since Eugene is Dan's father, will this be the first time um, we've had like related guests on the show?
0: Well, I'm gonna do a twenty-three in me to confirm that Jane Fonda is most of my ancestors, but <laughs> <laughs> thus far I think you're correct. mm, mm. Wow, and
3: Casey Lemons is definitely a grandmother to me, and she can't take that from me. So there we go.
2: She <laughs> fucking ruled.
3: Well, let's have Casey She's Lemons amazing. One hundred percent.
2: Let's just have her back. Let's have everybody back.
3: Angelica Ross is my sister. Every single black woman we've had is related to me. Period.
2: Let's have every guest back, and they'll um, testify before sending us all to prison, like Seinfeld. <laughs> oh, I remember. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, we'll be right back with more Keep It. Right, and we're back, and once again, um, on Keep It, when they go low, we <laughs> pull out the poison and put it in their champagne. <laughs> uh, I'm, of course, referring to Michelle Obama's speech, which kicked off the DNC, um, night one of the DNC, which was virtual this year, sadly, because it was supposed to be in Milwaukee, uh, my hometown, and I was... Mm-hmm. I had been needling since last year um, Cricket to send me and Aaron Ryan, also from Wisconsin, uh, to the convention this year. Damn. I think that would have been fun. Did you
3: get close? Did you get any response? Was it a go?
2: I mean, I was harassing them at the um, Cricket holiday party. Oh, uh, <laughs>
3: okay.
2: <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and, then of, and then, of course, the um, the world stopped.
3: Right, right, right.
2: So... Yes. <laughs> yes, Immediately
3: afterward, yes.
2: Anyway, um, my question is, in a world where this isn't all happening, do either of you even watch conventions?
0: I can dial into any public speaking experience because something tricks my brain into believing it's kind of an award show. Like, I almost... <laughs> yeah. Am, it almost is the thing I love. I know it's not.
2: Mm. And the RNC is like um, the People's Choice Awards, then? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Bayo, Kimberlyn Brown.
0: <laughs> p.s i just want to say about scott Bayo, which people including me were making jokes about yesterday i said how is scott baio even introduced to a millennial audience uh you know him from nothing here's scott baio uh <laughs> <laughs> and people on people on twitter were coming for me saying like charles in charge it's like if you were even born in 1980 you would have only seen the season finale of charles in charge when you were nine so I don't think that's right either I, I think saw it I was in reruns
2: right. I saw it in reruns but Arrested Development
3: him th- that too but there's also something about his face that for some reason has always been imprinted in my memory and consciousness like I pull up a photo of Scott Bayo and I unfortunately know who he is and what he's done and
2: where he's been he was on VH1 for years
3: it's a crack in the system
0: unfortunately I did watch Scott Bayo is 45 and single which was VH1's answer to Kathy Griffin's My Life on the D-List and also mm. not a bad show which is crazy to say but otherwise, he's not an icon to my generation, so stop pretending he is. Get out of my mentions. We'll move on now. <laughs> I want to say I liked watching Michelle Obama in particular this year because she's somebody who I don't need to hear interrupted by applause. She was somebody who had a very straightforward message. You paid attention the whole time. She's captivating that way. It was like listening to her, uh, the, the book on tape of her recent very bestselling memoir. And it was satisfying in that way. So I was happy we got her in that format.
3: I mean, in general, I've had a friend, like back in Nebraska, when I was very avidly involved in politics, because there was nothing to do, um, (laughs) my friend got a superdelegate status. He was just an obsessive Democrat boy who made his way there. So the only reason I wanted to watch it was to try and catch my friend Aaron Radigan, who had become a superdelegate, and then also to watch the white people dancing behind who at the time was Hillary Clinton. But other than that, nothing mm. happened for me. I don't like to watch those things.
0: I think I'm on the record as having said this before, but among the smartest things Hillary Clinton has ever done is not doing the Macarena at that one. She's <laughs> yeah. sh- she's like kind of bopping to it, but no <laughs> mm-hmm. but the hands don't move, which was what <laughs> she should have done.
3: Yeah. She always looks like she's on a marionette. That's kind of how she moves her body, is just puppet like. <laughs> oh.
2: I mean, conventions are always in and of themselves infomercials and propaganda for the party. Yes. Um, And this one in particular was just, it was extra weird to me because I guess it was also being covered by networks too, you know? But like in the midst of all this, I'm just like, the DNC this year was especially geared towards the Republican voter who is tired of Trump or, you know, that moderate voter who is like trying to lean left or right, you know, and needs to be convinced. Uh, And there are a lot of clips of former Republicans giving like confessionals in vertical front facing videos because Republicans don't know how to turn their iPhones uh, (laughs) and record actual videos. And I'm just talking about how they voted for Trump in 2016, and now they're voting for Biden, and they want the future of America. And I'm like, this is weird, y'all. That's super <laughs> weird. And, you know, and, and I'm not one of those people who is like um, the DNC is for younger people, um, you know, like it, trying to get out the, like, the younger um, crowd to vote. But my thing is, why aren't you trying to get out the younger crowd to vote? You know, why is AOC a minute versus like John Kasich? Um, standing in a um, field, you know, like uh, like he's waiting for Doctor Manhattan to arrive. You know, <laughs> it is very, it's just very odd to me, especially with the DNC going digital this year. Um, Why you don't at least have one night which is trying to um, bring in younger voters, particularly because Michelle Obama. Um, And Bernie Sanders' speech, who was right before, um, was very effective, too. You know, these are people who are always talking about getting younger people involved, you know. And Michelle, like, famously with Barack are always like, you know, like, we need our young folks to vote, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, well, listening to these old people aren't going to get that done, you know. Mm -hmm. It won't accomplish it. And I get that you also have to, you know, address older voters too but you know they are the dwindling voting class in america and you should be using this opportunity to reach out to people who are younger
0: in 2016 the spring and summer i spent in new york because i was writing for billy on the street i hooked up with the guy and right afterwards he goes uh it was around this time of year like pre-election stuff and he had just voted for john Kasich. Ugh. what could be worse for me literally now i have to live with that forever having hooked up with somebody who on the sly is voting Repub. And now I have to listen to this guy as if he's like some font of um, bipartisan knowledge that will help us win this election. Just... (laughs) <laughs> Gross.
2: Love that journey for you. There should
3: truly be a support group for all of us who have accidentally had sex with libertarians, mm. accidentally had sex with centrists, and accidentally had sex with people who voted for John Kasich. Right there. Those are the three mm. people who need to be tended to immediately. I'll say it. They're i th- hurting. I,
0: th- I think my group is the loneliest. I just want to say that. There's not many of us. I don't, I don't hear anybody speaking out.
3: Yeah. <laughs> be more vocal. I mean, I think that I, you're right, Ira, to notice that they're appealing to converts to Republican converts more than they're trying to appeal to the youth vote, especially with, I know that we're going to talk about it later with this conversation that Joe Biden had with Cardi B, which was just Cardi B yelling at him and Joe Biden deflecting. I mean, let's talk,
2: let's talk about it now. You know, I mean, like I feel like that would have been exciting to have involved in
3: the the
2: DNC to be honest, you know? And I think like we always go back to this point of someone trying to be slick online about uh, when Cardi has these moments, like she would always have these moments with Bernie, you know, about politics. And it's like, we've well established that, you know, she was a big history buff at school and also it's just like it's fun hearing someone you know who who feels real talking about politics you know and she is a real avatar for people who probably feel like their voices aren't being heard you know like i feel like she is a celebrity who still feels at least connected to what she was before she was a celebrity, you know?
3: Yeah, she always will have an accessible persona, and that's why we love Cardi B, truly. But what I, my point about that was that should have been incorporated in the DNC. Joe Biden spent most of his time in that interview harping on her about why in 2016 we lost the election because 18 to 24-year-olds didn't show up to the polls. But never has he even tried, even recently, to be appealing to us to get us to the polls. Cardi B slayed him in that conversation. Absolutely slayed him.
0: No, she is compulsively herself. So it's nice to see that energy paired with someone like Joe Biden, who was just, you know, a familiar politician we've all known about forever and ever. No one pays this woman to be this funny. And she routinely just (laughs) slaying me back and forth, including talking about various serious things to Joe Biden, which I feel like is a necessary ingredient for him at this point. Like some actual humor that doesn't involve the word malarkey.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, other than the DNC, what else have y'all been consuming in the past week, culture-wise?
3: Consuming? Well, you know, because not it's not like we get enough dystopia in our day-to-day, so I'm seeking it out more, so, in my reading. Um... I have to plug my favorite poet right now, former poet laureate, Tracy K. Smith, who has her own podcast, if you guys are interested in listening to a little bit of poetry every day. And I'm finding that, you know, every day feels like a Cormac McCarthy book, (laughs) a (laughs) Red Bradbury giving me, just giving me those vibes, giving me Fahrenheit 451 every single fucking day. We're the burning
0: paper. Yes. Uh. We are.
3: We are. Yes. This is a country only for old men. (laughs) I <laughs> am um, actually struggling. I so I'm trying to lean lean into sci-fi and futuristic kind of Afro-futuristic literature that's giving me a vision for a brighter future. So mm. I'm leaning in, like I said, to Tracy K. Smith. Reading a lot of Ursula Ursula Le Guin. Reading I'm reading speech sounds. I'm reading Octavia Butler. I'm reading a anything that is on the Black Girl Science Fiction Tip that I can just pretend like we are the only ones that exist right now is helping me a lot. Uh, these are pretty kind of standard ass anthology ass short stories but yes read speech sounds and read the one who walked away from omela's and those two short stories have made me feel a lot better about philosophy and morality and the world and i'd rather be talking about love and interplanetary travel than fucking Mm. united states postal service right now so
2: (laughs) well you know speaking of like black girl uh sci-fi and shit you know um I watched the premiere of Lovecraft Country this weekend. Yes, and haven't seen it yet. You got to tell me about it. It is fantastic. Uh, first of all, it, it is from um, Jordan Peele as a producer, but Misha Green is the one who is helming it. Um, who I love. She created um, the series Underground. If you remember that show, um, and that was mm-hmm. a reimagining of. Um, the Underground Railroad and slavery. And um, it was a great, gripping um, television show that I feel like sort of um, got into stories that we didn't really see before of slaves. But um, this in particular is just truly gripping from the outset. First, the mission statement of reimagining H.P. Lovecraft. One thing you don't really learn about H.P. Lovecraft while reading him in high school, or at least I did not because I had friends who were really into him, um, and I was into sci-fi, and, you know, it's it's hard to even get away from his influence in sci-fi because it's so ubiquitous, but... Um, my man's was a racist. Totally. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, in, like, insane, like insane Hitler-loving racist, yes. you know? And um, what's weird is that um, I would almost compare um, Lovecraft to J.K. Rowling, in a sense, mm. um, of someone who <laughs> um, is so ubiquitous in their influence on culture, um, but also because of their fans. You know, I feel like we hear about a lot of writers who are like Lovecraftian, you know, like Stephen King, Mm -hmm. Mm
4: -hmm. for
2: instance. And that is because Lovecraft encouraged like fan fiction and um, like people writing about his stories and monsters themselves and incorporating them into um, his world. You know, like there's so many people who've written their own takes on um, his famous monster, um, Cthulhu. So much of Lovecraft's, like, influence, I feel like, is because of other people taking up that mantle, you know? I feel like more people know work that has been influenced by him um, than know his original works. And I just compare that to, like, a JK who is also a monster. Uh, And so much of the Harry Potter, like, fandom and influence is, I would say, because of, like, fan fiction and fans, like, creating so much of it online in the aftermath of reading those books. And also, we brought, we brought up KC um, Lemons earlier. Um, yes. but Journey Smollett is stars in this. Um, from oh, Eve's she's in Bayou. that little
3: movie, Eve's Bayou that yes. we never mentioned on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, we never talk about it.
2: Uh, but see, Jer- Journey Smollett and Jonathan Majors. Uh, Courtney B. Vance mm. also in this. Um, really? it's, just, it's just a way of retelling this story um, because the characters are aware of Lovecraft in it and they talk about his racism but then they're also experiencing his monsters as well in the world so it It's doing that sort of meta thing of referencing it, Mm -hmm. but then also reclaiming his stories, which were a lot about, you know, like, the other and race and, you know, like, very Candyman-esque, you know? Like, black people are the boogeyman, and, you know, it's about, like, how white people were terrorized by them, and it's really reframing it with, like, black people at the center. And, I don't know, the music is great, the acting is great, um, and I think everyone in it is really fantastic so
3: after the five bloods and last black man in san francisco jonathan majors has quickly become one of my favorite his arms his arms his his body his nose his beautiful arresting face i can't there's a there's
2: a scene where he like has his shirt off and he's running around in a water hydrant um that has been Mm -hmm. burst in the street and (laughs) had, had to pause
3: I love that craft. <laughs> That's the craft that I love.
2: It's very David LaChapelle photo shoot. One of my favorite <laughs> yes. versions of queerness. It
3: exploded. <laughs> um, Anything exploding.
2: You know, I met him here. the other week, Lewis. Oh, really? Ooh. I mean, yeah. I love David, David LaChapelle.
3: La oh wow! Girl, yeah. Where were you at? Where were you at? Uh,
2: I can't reveal what it was for yet, but uh-huh. I did. I, did a, um, <laughs> I, I interviewed someone for a magazine um, profile. Which comes out next month? But uh, David LaChapelle was the photographer, and I was at his studio, and oh, fabulous! Just being next to that man who shot like Missy Elliott eating from like the cereal box, and Madonna, and Angelina, like
3: I know you felt that.
0: (laughs) Um, Speaking of Madonna, one of my favorite actresses of all time. I'm now going to talk about actresses. I want to give a shout out to a book I've meant to buy a long time ago, which is called Best Actress, the History of Oscar Winning Women. And it's a picture book. And there's a foreword by Roxane Gay, which is great. But also uh, it goes through just the history of best actresses. And I wanted to point out one person in particular whose movies have been so satisfying to watch during... Um, quarantine because she really articulates a rage and a cynicism well, and I think goes underrated in the history of actresses. We talked about Cat on a Hot Tin Roof earlier, but I'm talking about Paul Newman's wife, Joanne Woodward, mm. who, uh, uh, she won an Oscar for a movie called Three Faces of Eve, where she played a woman with multiple personalities. But going into the 60s and 70s, this woman really was the original Kirsten Dunst, in that the level of rage on her face, dealing with either like her horrible kids her marriage that's fucking falling apart, the eye rolls. These are all things that are essential to me as a human being. And to revisit them, I just saw a movie of hers called Rachel Rachel where it's her and um, Estelle Parsons are the stars. Just watching her be an unhappy single person, kind of maybe finding a glimmer of optimism at the end of the story felt so realistic to me and the right level of hope I can deal with at this moment. So I recommend looking back at um, Joanne Woodward's movies, particularly a crazy one called "The Effect of Gamma Rays on Man and the Moon Marigolds," which is from the '70s. She won the Best Actress at Cannes for it. This is a movie about a woman who has kids and she's basically evil to everybody in sight, including what calling one man a faggot on the street. Guys, it was very funny. That's all I have to say about that. So get it on that. Look up Joanne Woodward and come back to me.
2: Well, that's based on the play by Paul Zendel, which I ha- yes. I've seen. I've seen. I've seen scenes from the effects of Gamma Rays, um, and I've seen a production of it in college before, but I've never actually seen the movie. But um, Joanne Woodward is fantastic in Paris Blues. Oh, with my her God,
0: husband. the, monolo- the yeah, monologue she has in her. that, where she's like uh, saying, like as they're lovers who are falling apart or whatever, she is heartbreaking. I, yeah. So underrated. And Every- also our oldest living Best Actress winner.
2: Oh, yeah, she's still alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks to Olivia de Havilland's death
0: who kindly stepped yeah. aside after 500 years.
2: Do you think she did it? <laughs> 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 Joanne um, could do it with a smirk on her face, and we would nominate her for it. Um, I think we've mentioned it before when we were interviewing um, Andre Holland, but um, if you haven't seen Paris Blues, it is Joanne, it is Paul Newman, it is Diane Carroll, it is Sydney Poitier, it is... Gorgeous and just like this sexy movie um, set in Paris and it's from like 1961 and is mm-hmm. racier than you would sort of expect from a movie of the era. I think that's not – that one that isn't a noir film. Right, right. Because right. like she jumps into bed with Paul Newman – very quickly, and their like post-cordial conversation is <laughs> sizzling.
0: And it's a couple that stayed together for 150 years, so the chemistry is fun to explore, and nothing you're projecting onto it's real.
2: And of course, um, Three Phases of Eve, which you mentioned, you know, is fantastic, and a kiss before dying. Oh, yeah, love
0: kiss before dying, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge from the 90s. She stayed great anyway.
2: Well, I guess that's a lot of things for people to check out. <laughs> that's our job, we
0: did it. I know. <laughs> uh-huh.
2: All right, when we're back. Lewis and I will have a chat with Catherine O'Hara. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams robe. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? (laughs) no Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life you turn to Barefoot Dreams especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary with those 30 years of coziness Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket and while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets robes and more Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated so don't believe the dupes Girl, this blanket is it.
0: I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus. Get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort, as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I
2: Our first guest today is one of Canada's greatest exports, one of the funniest women ever to grace the screen, the Queen of Schitt's Creek herself. Say her name three times and hope she appears. Please welcome Catherine O'Hara. Lewis and I are so excited to have you here. Um, we are huge fans of your work from so many eras. <laughs> Heirs. You really have just like different moments where I feel like people who drop into pop culture would say that you are one of their favorite parts of, you know, obviously, like as kids, Lewis and I watched Home Alone. Um, but even before that, you know, there's like there's Beetlejuice and um now Shits Creek, the Christopher Guest movies, there's so many things for us to enjoy you, Ed.
5: Oh, thanks. Yeah, I've been lucky. I've had uh, some nice jobs and worked with great people. And I'm a late bloomer.
0: So you're about to go into this explosive Emmys where the show is nominated for, I believe, 500 Emmys.
5: Yes, 507.
0: (laughs) You're somebody who won uh, a writing Emmy back in the 80s. Do you look forward to events like this? And are there people you look forward to seeing? Or is it all work or stressful or what?
5: I would normally look forward to seeing people. I would uh, get nervous about what to wear and all that. And uh, we don't have to worry about any of that this year. We're not gathering at all.
4: (laughs) True. Yeah.
5: (laughs) I feel bad for Silas. I think Eugene and Daniel are talking about getting together somewhere at one of their homes. And I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm sad that I can't be with my uh, Schitt's Creek friends and family. But, you know, there are worse problems in the world. Yeah. It'll look the same. You know, I think to a television viewer, it's the same. It's on a screen. uh, But we'll just be in our homes if we're
2: involved at all. Um, Speaking of Eugene, you two just have this um, easy chemistry together. We've seen um, SCTV. We've seen it um, in the guest movies, particularly we were talking about A Mighty Wind. And now this, just what is one of your favorite things about playing off of Eugene that you've been able to just sort of play out for the past six seasons on this show.
5: I know it's crazy. We've become kind of partners and uh, I hold him responsible because he and Chris guest hired me for those improvised movies. So he started it. Thank you, Eugene. Uh, And then he gave me the job on Schitt's Creek. So I owe, I owe him a lot. And I guess he likes me. Uh, Yeah. I, I I love working with him. He's um, he makes it easy. He, he makes it stress-free because he's just about the work. He takes comedy seriously, even though he's really funny. And he's fun on the set. And, you know, we were trained at Second City and SCTV and we help each other and we laugh at each other when we blow it. And it is easy that way. But it's also, in a good way, it's challenging and exciting because he continually surprises me like a good husband should. (laughs) And I hope I surprise him. And he treats me with respect and he makes me feel like I have something to offer. And he's a gentleman. I always say this about him, but it's true. You know, you can see the love in that show that Daniel's put into it. That comes from, you know, his family and, and his parents, Eugene and Deb. So, uh, yeah, he's, he's a good man as well as really talented. <laughs> but, you know, the good man part is is a big part of it.
0: Um. So to my ear, listening to Moira speak, it's much been talked about the crazy words that pop out of your mouth, the amount of vocabulary we learn just from this character alone. To me... This must be one of the most difficult characters you've ever played, based on the amount you have to say and the obviously the cadence with which you say it. How does it stack up with your long history of crazy characters in terms of difficulty?
5: The difficult part was deciding what to do in the first place when we were doing that first season, setting it up. And I think I drove Eugene nuts with emails and in person and Eugene I don't want to be like that. And I don't want to be a typical this. And I want to do this. And I want to, and what if I, what if I wear wigs in every see? <laughs> <I'm> like, what? <laughs> or what if I, what if I keep changing? My, what, what if I, uh, what if I speak with kind of a different accent? Um, well, let's, let's hear that. And we'll uh, see if we can work with it. And, you know, it was just, eh. he was just like Johnny and I was Moira. He was so calm and reasonable and, you know, kind to me. And I was driving him nuts, I think. So the scary part for me, the nerve wracking part was kind of coming up with a character that I, I could live with. Cause I'd never done a character for any real length of time. You know, the longest was maybe in a movie and otherwise I did sketch comedy where you get to, you know, keep, just keep changing uh, one bit after the other. But no, it wasn't, you know, once we all agreed on what it could, would be and once they started writing for me and then being allowed to collaborate, you know, Daniel would give me the scene outlines, uh, the story outlines, the whole, you know, episode outlines and then we would discuss, you know, where my character was going and what could happen and why it was already great, but any offerings that I might have. That was really fun. That was fun and lovely. And, and then I could play with my dialogue. I had some great books, uh, makeup artist Lucky Brumhead gave me Foils for Lavery, which is full of those words. Like one of my favorites is Unasmus, which is equally stupid. <laughs> you know, that really nastiness idea put forward,
4: you know, just,
5: and then being able to speak like an alien and to have you know a lot of people of people I know have tried to imitate it and it's really hard because they try to be consistent and it's actually so inconsistent <laughs> and I was allowed to just add as many syllables to a word as I wanted and so I don't know it didn't feel like hard work it just felt Challenging and fun.
0: That must be fun to bedevil accent aficionados, etc. Doing whatever you want because it's in part with the character. Oh, there's a
5: great uh, site on in from Australia, and they hired or asked a speech expert <laughs> to analyze uh, Moira's speech, and the uh, expert hadn't seen the show. And they didn't present it as a character on a show. They said, here's a person. And they gave samples of me speaking. And one of the great things the expert said was, it sounded like this person had not learned to speak English until they were eight or nine years old.
4: <laughs> I love
5: that. So each day I'm trying to form the words.
2: <laughs> um what I think about great Katherine O'Hara characters, you know, I mean, they all have this sort of um, insanity to them, but also this controlled um, insanity to them, too. And, and something that always makes them seem very relatable and likable, even when they're Villainous, you know, like Delia in Beetlejuice, you know? And I just yeah. wonder, like, what do you think when you sort of like get a character? Do you that know, were people always expecting, like, oh, this is sort of like another Katherine O'Hara character, you know? Like, am I going to be a bit, you know, like crazy, outlandish? Or do you really just think, like, what needs to be done for this character in particular before you jump into it?
5: Yeah, I don't think. Uh, I don't remember trying to be crazy <laughs> <laughs> or, or anything. Sometimes it's there on paper
2: mm-hmm.
5: and then you make sense of that. Even then, even if it's clearly on paper that you are crazy, no one thinks of themselves that way. So you, you look for all the reasoning. Why am I doing this? Why am I saying this? Why do I relate to that person that way? Uh, why do I treat them that way? Why do I speak that way? It all, you know, you make sense of all of it as well as you can. I mean, I I try to relate to my character as much as I can and, and reason out and excuse and indulge you know everything my character needs uh so yeah it doesn't feel crazy but i also think you say controlled insanity that's all of us Mm -hmm. really because we're all going to die and we're (laughs) acting like we're not going to so that in itself is controlled insanity so maybe that's what's coming across
2: in what i do true I mean, if anything, yeah. Beetlejuice is that movie, right? You know, the fact that we're all going to die. Yeah. Um, and you are all existing in this sort of Strindberg world.
4: Right. Yeah.
2: I would also say another one of my favorites um, of yours is Scorsese's After Hours. Um, and oh, yeah. you are just, your, that, your character in that film actually is probably one of the more. Sane ones, to be honest, you know. You see, <laughs> yeah. you see, yeah, Griff Harry Gar. Yeah. Yes, uh-huh. I mean, you see, um, Griffith Dunn, and you're like, he's a burglar, you know, like you think he's a villain yeah. from the outset, and you know, like even you driving the Mister Softy <laughs> truck around <laughs> New York uh, feels normal in the rest of that insane movie.
5: Oh yeah, his character to me was just a little weasel. You know? <laughs> and why don't you just walk home? Have you never walked a hundred blocks? What is your problem? Yes. Yeah. just You know, that's the only time I worked with Bart Scorsese. But when I met with him before I was in the movie, he uh, he said, you know about editing, right? I, said, I think so, yes. And when I got there, I realized what he meant because he gets you to improvise leading up to what's in the script, mm. to the actual dialogue in the script. He'd get you to improvise up to that moment and improvise further on. And with each character, he's completely on your side. I mean, I've only done one movie, my movies, this is my one experience I'm speaking from, but I don't know if he always works this way, but he would lead me up to, you know, when Griffith Dunn's character is in my apartment and I'm pissing him off by rambling off numbers while he's trying to remember a phone number he got from the operator. Um, he <laughs> would say, this little fucker's gotten in your room. What the he's got his nerve doing get him? Just get him, get him. And he's like feeding and <laughs> that's such a great way to work. You know, none of that's none of what you what you do on camera leading up to that written scene is used. So I did learn what editing really is. But it, he just he works you up in in a great way. So you can't help but be completely in character and ready for that. Yeah. So I was a reason. Did you notice they were all blonde women going after?
2: Yes. Yeah. and
5: dust character.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was that about? <laughs> and also like it, it it's an underrated sort of Scorsese film, but I feel like it matches a lot of his other films because you watch it, rewatching it, you sort of realize that his character is just as awful as the mobsters in his other movies. <laughs> <laughs>
5: yeah. Oh yeah. And Scorsese says that it said at the time that he took that movie on because He had been trying for the first time to make Last Temptation, Jesus Mm -hmm. Christ, and couldn't get it done. And he felt like Griffin Dunn's character, Mm. where he just kept meeting obstacles and people who didn't want to help him in any way. And it represented what he was going through.
0: As somebody who has put so much comedy into the world, it doesn't seem like it takes anything out of you. You just have this energy about you. What is your appetite for comedy? Do you find yourself seeking it out, watching a lot of it? Are there things you revisit? Are you likelier to watch new or old stuff? Like just, do you care to watch comedy?
5: Of course, yeah. Don't you love to laugh? Sometimes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think we need to laugh. Oh, it's such a gift to be able to find the humor in anything, especially when things are not so good, not going so well in your life. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, you know, I'll watch, I'll watch everything. I love stupid comedy. I love, you know, Dumb and Dumber. When it is purposefully stupid. I love MacGruber. Have you seen MacGruber? <laughs> oh, MacGruber's is yes, fantastic. Right oh, my master. Lord. The nerve they have in the movie. <laughs> Just, it's ridiculously funny. It's so good. I hear they're going to make a series out of it. I'll watch John Oliver and I'll laugh and then I'll be really depressed because what he actually taught me was pretty depressing about what's going on in the world. I love everything. I love just great, weird acting. I mean, I'll laugh at, speaking for Scorsese again, you know, Gangs of New York. Mm. Like Daniel Day-Lewis and that was such an, an atrocious
2: person. That's my favorite Scorsese. You
5: know, great actors like Daniel Day-Lewis, they always have humor in their work. So even if the story is really heavy and, you know, violent and, you know, and the character's horrific, Uh, he's just relishing every bit of it. And he has such humor in it. So Yeah, I laugh at everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, when it's
2: well done. Well, yes. (laughs) Yes, That's the key. That's the key. (laughs) Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Are there there roles of your own that maybe you revisit from time to time? Or do you find that you don't like to rewatch your own work?
5: Uh, Well, if something comes on, I'm flipping around. Yeah,
2: I mean, I'll always watch Beetlejuice mm-hmm. if it comes on. And
5: I met my husband on that, he designed the sets. Uh, so I have lots of lovely memories from uh, that shoot. Oh, there's some things, you know, just physically, or you know, before I got uh, bonding, or veneers. <laughs> 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 oh, oh, Look at that old, old SCTV
4: stuff, I go, oh, okay.
5: Um, <laughs> but if I'm, if I'm in character, I don't take it personally. Mm-hmm. You know, if I watch this afterwards, I'll be more embarrassed, way more embarrassed about this than any insane character I've played.
0: <laughs> does it does it feel different watching back some of the more dramatic stuff you've done? Like you were nominated for an Emmy for Temple Grandin, for example. Like mm-hmm. uh, if, if you see that again, are you like able to watch that?
5: Oh, yeah. Well, I'm such a small, you know, I'm I'm just there to support, you know, Claire Danes. Oh, I love Claire Danes. I love Homeland and I love uh, Claire Danes in that was so beautiful and it was so beautifully made. I mean, and Temple Grand in the subject, such an amazing woman. When I read it, I thought, Oh, I'm just nice. <laughs> it's just a nice <laughs> what a I'm relief. Yeah. <laughs> That's hard. It is hard. I mean, what? But I'm so glad I, I was uh, just smart enough to take the role. Cause it was lovely and lovely to work with Claire. And she kept apologizing when we were away from the set for not relating to me more because she's playing somebody who wasn't connecting totally emotionally and spiritually with the people around her. And I said, are you kidding? You're just giving me Temple Grandin. What more could I ask for? (laughs) Yeah, no, I would watch that in a second. Yeah. It was beautifully done. The visuals in that to try to get inside Temple Grandin's head was uh, I thought beautifully done.
0: Yeah. Actually, that reminds me of uh, on the movie Ordinary People, like Timothy Hutton, the rest of the cast sort of like treated him like not dirt, but they ignored him and stuff because there was an iciness among the family. You, to me, seem like such a straightforward, personable person. Has there ever been like an onset experience that was unlike how you carry yourself normally, you know, a a, a vibe you had to dial into?
5: I did a movie that was all um, starring a lot of younger people. And I many times was far and above the oldest person on the set. And I really felt like I wasn't
4: there. It was really (laughs) sad.
5: In fact, there was a scene. There were four of us in the scene, and the director was blocking the scene for shooting. And he said, I got to mix this up. It's just coming off as a triangle. I was the fourth, but I wasn't actually there in his eyes. (laughs) If you play a character that's kind of ostracized by the other characters, even if no one's a method actor, that dynamic does happen on the set. It's very strange. It's almost like we are, we know we're there to do a job. So even though we're standing around, you know, laughing about life or whatever, telling stories, we're all kind of doing our job by keeping that dynamic or setting up that dynamic, or maybe other forces are, you know, subtly making us do it. I don't um, I remember um, Emily said she felt that way at the beginning of Schitt's Creek. She was the, you know, working in the motel, mm-hmm. and we were this family coming in, and we were also different. Before they developed, you know, the friendship between David and Stevie. She said she felt that way, like she was never a part of it. Even though we all thought we were all together on the set, she said that was there. And I don't remember anyone treating her differently, but maybe she was just getting into character and feeling like we were aliens coming and busting in on her life. But
0: mm-hmm.
5: it does kinda happen. Yeah, if you play a really hated person, it must be awful on a set. <laughs> Nobody would want
0: to be around me. <laughs> the idea of not speaking to you like all the time on the set, like I would be to use the most cliched internet word of all time, a dork. And I would be talking to you about your whole career and be like, Oh, give me all the Gilda Radner secrets or whatever. So I'm, oh, I, yeah. I'm not <laughs> not gild- it just yeah. seems crazy no, that someone would do that
2: to you.
5: Not about Gilda, but no, you would get bored.
0: talking to
2: me. <laughs> you think so? Really. <laughs> I mean, we, we've talked about your great chemistry with, um, Eugene, um, are there other people um, or one other person who stands out from, like, your career who, like, you felt like you had a really great chemistry with that you wish you could revisit again? I mean, I know for me personally, um, I love every scene that you have with John Candy in Home Alone. And I feel like that's, oh. the, I feel like that's the movie for me, mm-hmm. to be honest. Even as a kid, I was, like, I was obsessed with these scenes. <laughs>
5: Uh John Hughes was so in love with John Candy and vice versa. And he brought, you know, John was working on something else. John Candy, got bless and was working on something else. And he had, I think, 21 hours available mm. <laughs> <laughs> between working with us and getting back on the set. And John Hughes milked every, you know, 21 hours out of him. Improv- improvising. We were in that first home alone. and <clears throat> We were in a van, you know, on a soundstage, and he just, John Hughes kept feeding John Candy, you know, what about this? What about this? What about us coming up with ideas? And I, of course, was playing the straight mother looking for a child. So <laughs> any of the stuff that John and I improvised together is not in the movie. He was like,
4: <laughs> Do you remember
5: you're looking for your child? I was like, Dude, I'm trying to do bits with John. Uh, but yeah, he's so, oh, he's so lovely. Whatever lovely thing you think about John Candy. You know, from afar, I don't know if you met him, but you would be so not disappointed if you met him. He he was all that and more. Mm. Just a really sweet, lovable guy. Yeah. Yeah. Really
2: lovely. And were there um, any other, like, moments that stand out for you besides, like, John or, like, Eugene? Like, anyone whose chemistry you really, really sort of missed or would love to revisit?
5: Well, yeah, I was so lucky to work with uh, John and Eugene. Andrew Martin, I love. Mm. We had great fun working together. Uh, Dave Thomas and I at Second City Theater used to play a lot of the worst fighting husband wives. So it was really fun to just at each other for laughs. Uh, Marty Short, love him, love him. He just makes me laugh all the time, always. That guy's so full of stories. You've seen him on talk shows. He's just nonstop. Everything that happens to me turns into a story. <laughs> I wish I could do that. Yeah, I, I, it's hard. Who am I missing? Joe Flaherty. Uh, Second City S C two was amazing. Rick, mm-hmm. he's he taught us all. Joe Joe directed all of us at Second City Theater. It was just so uh, quick and smart and funny. We loved to pimpy on stage, set you up, say, "Aren't you an expert on uh, Russian uh, literature?" <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Could you give us some? Ex- no. And <laughs> Rick Moranis was. Uh, genius way ahead of his time he did vjs before vjs existed
2: Mm, right
5: by vjs i mean video
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. yes lewis and i are from the still from the mtv era where we had vjs so
5: yeah i remember
0: (laughs) oh yes
2: yeah
5: (laughs) now they're all on serious
0: (laughs) totally yeah no i still listen to like nina blackwood every day
5: yeah yeah yeah. that's great Uh. Uh. I don't know. Sorry. I'm going to feel bad after this that I didn't, I didn't name everybody.
0: No, John
5: Heard was great.
0: You, get, you gave a good melange, a healthy melange. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to use a yeah. Moira word, a melange.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Very good.
2: Uh, uh, thank you so much for being here with us, Catherine. I mean, and also good luck on all the Emmys. I don't think you need it. I think Schitt's Creek is going to sweep a lot.
5: I don't know. Remember, I was in for your consideration.
2: True. True. Yes.
0: <laughs>
2: you know the story.
5: Yeah. So. <laughs> that's a that's a good little reminder. <laughs> thank you.
6: Vacations are always good
2: Our second guest today is one of the greatest TV and movie patriarchs of our time, a comedy legend, Second City alum, and Canadian royalty, please welcome Eugene Levy. We've had Dan on, Ah. Um, I'm friends with him, and it's been so exciting to see you two working together. Exciting for me too. (laughs)
1: Yeah, probably more exciting for me than for you. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah, Um, I can imagine. Um... I want to know, um, this show has become so big, especially in its last few years. Yeah. I want to know, are you getting more people who now would recognize you from, say, this versus my generation, which grew up with American yeah. Pie, yeah. versus people who, you yeah. know, like the Christopher Guest films?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no question. And I've noticed uh, that. Uh, because, it, you know, it used to be, like, a- after every film that was, you know, a success, like American Pie, so I would get people coming up and saying, had any pie lately? <laughs> wink, wink. And I'd be, oh, that's clever. That's good. <laughs> wow. I don't know how you came up with that, but that's... That's really something. No, I haven't. And then uh, after Best in Show, it would be, Oh, I see your feet are normal. Mm. And then when, uh, when Shits Creek, I think when we got on Netflix, mm-hmm. it really started to percolate out there. And I noticed that the response from the public was more about Shits Creek, hey, caught your show, love your show. And now, virtually it's all Shit's Creek, so there has been a difference in the past, you know, two or three years.
0: A question I have for you is: though people associate you with these roles, Shit's Creek and American Pie and the Christopher Guest movies, I still think of you as somebody who did so many hilarious impressions, namely on SCTV, but in a lot of formats going forward. And my question is. Is there anybody you loved impersonating that you can't really do now because people have forgotten who that person was or there's less interest in, you know, like, do you just want people to, like, listen to your Menachem Begin impression once in a while, you know?
1: (laughs) Well, actually, I think I was Yasser Arafat um, (laughs) in that particular uh, scene. Uh, I think most of the people that I impersonated, nobody would know under the age of 80, I don't think, uh, now. Who was I doing on the show back then? I mean, I was doing some odd impressions, like Ernest Borgnine. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I could be the only person in show business that's ever done an impression of Ernest Borgnine. Uh, Neil Sedaka. Oh, my God. We did uh, Howard Cosell. We did a lot of stuff back then. And I developed, uh, I developed a knack for impersonation. I, I was mm-hmm. never as strong as the other, you know, uh, Catherine O'Hara, uh, Dave Thomas, and Joe Flaherty. They, they came out of the gate on SCTV doing very strong impressions. I was not, my talent didn't lie in that uh, area. In fact, I'm not sure it lied in any area, particularly when we started that show. But uh, it developed over the course of time, and then it became like a lot of fun. So yeah, I don't get an opportunity really to do that so much anymore. I don't have an act, you know, per se. But and you must have been my God, SCTV. What you must have been for when the reruns came out?
0: Oh, and no, Ira and I are both like pop culture time travelers. We are we are not <laughs> we are not beholden to the '90s or the '2000s. I I've seen every episode of One Day at a Time, the original, for example. So don't worry about that.
1: Wow. <laughs> yes. Pat Harrington Jr.
0: I God, one of the great supporting performances ever. Yes, I loved him on that show.
1: Yeah. Yes. Well, I remember him going back to the Danny Thomas show, but that is that's for another, that's for another time and, and, uh, and another discussion. <laughs> Perhaps with people even older than you.
0: He was talking about Schneider on One Day at a time. You guys have all seen the new version. You gotta watch
1: the old one too, but okay. You love the old version. Valerie mm. Bertinelli? who is
2: great on Twitter. Please follow Valerie Bertinelli.
1: All right, we'll do that. <laughs>
2: yeah. uh, speaking of Catherine, who you brought up, you two met on SCTV.
1: Did you? Or no, you met... No, um, before on
0: the Godspell, right?
1: Well, we met, yes, when I was in Godspell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Catherine's brother, Marcus, was dating Gilda Radner at that time, who was in Godspell with us. So I I met... Marcus's little sister while I was in Godspell, but never actually got to work with her until she took over from Gilda mm-hmm. uh, in the Second City Theater in Toronto. And uh, that's when we started working together. And that would have been about mm, mm, 74.
2: Mm-hmm. From yeah. So from meeting her then and working together to now in Schitt's Creek, you know, and you've done summoning the other things together, you know, um I was rewatching A Mighty Wind this weekend, you know, and um I be I love you both in that film so much. Um and I feel like it has so much of your probably history of working together too. Like do you have a favorite Project, you know, that you've done together um, that you think of fondly and sort of like also when you get together in like Schitt's Creek when this was first starting, you know, like how do you ease back into I find this very comfortable comedic relationship that you two have, which is so interesting to me because I think that both of you um, have different brands of comedy um, that most people wouldn't think would gel immediately the way that they do
1: we don't have, uh, that different, uh, style or a mode of operation, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to comedy, Catherine and I, and I think the reason that we do work well together is we, 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 we kind of share that same sensibility and that we don't consider ourselves, you know, funny people in, you know, in real life kind of. And I don't, by that, I mean, we, we you know, we're not comedians. We're not stand-ups. We don't necessarily always look at life through a, you know, a comic lens. And we do take our comedy seriously. <clears throat> we get our comedy through our characters. Mm-hmm. We work pretty much the same. Uh, we work very seriously at what we do. And we like to work hard and, you know, we like to, you know, rehearse and make sure we've got it down. And knowing that somebody that you're working that closely with has that sensibility makes you more comfortable and makes them more comfortable as opposed to working with somebody who has a different style of working, let's say, who maybe doesn't like to work it out that much, maybe doesn't like to put in that much time, uh, which would make things uh, a bit awkward. So all that kind of works itself out over the years mm-hmm. uh, in the things that we've done together. You know, we started SETV in, what, 76? And that was talking about favorite things. I mean, I, I don't know whether I can pinpoint it to one thing. Uh, I probably could, and that would be Shit's Creek. I mean, to, mm-hmm. I mean, for me, that has turned out to be the best job, you know, I've ever had on so many fronts. But we had a ball doing SCTV back in the days when we were young upstarts and the inmates were running the asylum. And it was great fun doing that show. We worked our asses off, put in a lot of long hours, but we didn't, you know, we didn't care. Uh, We weren't making all that much money, but we didn't care because it was just so exciting. And I guess uh, Best in Show was probably a, a great working situation as well. Uh, all those films were great. A Mighty Wind certainly mm-hmm. uh, had the most serious storyline of all the Christopher Guest films in terms of the Mitch and Mickey storyline. And that kind of tone in A Mighty Wind helped set the stage for Shit's Creek in a, in a way because it was my son Daniel who, when he came to me with this idea, you know, mm-hmm. was looking for that sensibility the same sensibility that, we, that Chris and I had in our movies, where you could actually do a comedy and have a storyline running through it that is actually more on the dramatic side. Good character comedy, and if you hook the audience on your character, you can really take them for a lovely ride they didn't necessarily expect.
0: That reminds me of, there's a quote from the songwriter Amy Mann who says, the best serious material is truly lighthearted. You know, you can get to serious truths about people through jokes, et cetera, you know, since making jokes is a form of truth-telling. But yeah. something that has been fascinating to me is how much press you've done with your own son and how much of it has required you to, I'm sure, get to know each other better than you already did. Um, I like wa- love watching you guys on panels. Uh, and watching audiences react to you with, with like a maniac like fervor. That's been really exciting <laughs> to see. Yeah. But can you talk about just getting closer to your kid through this process? Like, do you know things about him you never would have known had you not been on this journey with him?
1: I think as a dad, I would say I've had an opportunity that a lot of parents don't really get to have, which is the opportunity to work every day with your Kids, I was working with Daniel and of course Sarah on the set as well. Right, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was great knowing that he came through in such a big way and developed as such a great writer and producer and and actor uh, right before my eyes. Uh, this was all blossoming as we were working and watching him grow and become as good as he is now was something to behold as a dad. So that experience I cherish because I, I know that a lot of fathers don't and, and mothers don't get a lot of don't get that chance to spend day after day in a working situation where it's not just uh, a father son thing. And on the set, we were literally partners. Uh, we tried not to get into the father son thing as much as two partners working together to put on a show as good as we could. Um, So I do, I do, I do love, I I love that entire six years working with Daniel and, and Sarah as well.
2: Mm -hmm. I brought up American pie earlier, which I recently revisited, uh, which is wild to revisit now uh, in 2020. And I wonder if you have, revisited it and if any part of those movies like um is still like a part of your life in that like are you still in contact with any of the people from that movie in a sense because it to that you felt a lot like a father to all of those kids especially since you also were in the other movies too more so than any of the other cast members
1: we did well certainly certainly jason and i have uh you know kept up communication my second son and you know it's uh we, you know we're we're very good friends uh i we would always uh, visit when deb and i my wife uh we went to new york we'd we'd always you know visit jason and his family uh I love that boy. In fact, I had a, there, there was a little, um, uh, tribute that was put on unbeknownst to me, it was being planned, uh, that Jason was a part of, and it was kind of great to see him in that as well. Very funny and sweet segment he had, but that was kind of like a, you know, in terms of a job, American pie was, was kind of Shit's Creek, like in the sense that every time we came back mm-hmm. to do a movie, it was kind of the same gang. Although, I didn't really get a chance to work with everybody, uh, all the other kids in those movies, uh, mm-hmm. except maybe the last one, American Reunion, where I got a chance to work with uh, Sean William Scott Moore, Stifler, mm-hmm. which was great fun. And, and at least uh, got to hang with the cast when we went out to do press mm-hmm. for it and went on, went on the junkets. And that, that was kind of fun because I did get to hang with everybody as we traveled around from city to city. So a good, very talented bunch of kids. That was an extremely talented cast. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I liken it to Schitt's Creek because Schitt's Creek also had such an amazing cast to be able to, you know, pull off, you know, what they did, even though we had just insanely great writing. But those characters were very rich characters that the audience uh, grew to love.
2: I mean, even the opening of it is it's still very everyone is funny. And just the chemistry of that movie was the thing that stood out for me rewatching it recently, because what I remember, obviously, from when I was a kid was this raunchy movie and it has all these sex gags in it, you yeah. know? Um, and it, it
1: seems so quaint now watching it. <laughs> um, well, quaint is still might be a bit going under, but, uh, <laughs> I, I know what, I know what you mean. The, the raunchy part, yeah. the raunchy part I totally get, which is why I, when I first got the script, I said, no, I, I don't really want to be, a, be a part of it. It's a little, it's, it's a little raunchy for me. And, and, and I think I've told the story of, Of how that actually developed and how the character, my character, uh, did get changed. I, I didn't want to play it the way it was originally written. But yeah, listen, and hats off to Paul and Chris Weitz because, you know, those kids at the time were extremely bright and smart when I met them. And I realized on that first meeting, this kind of raunchy film has a chance of being more than just a raunchy film because these guys are incredibly smart with such a great grasp of comedy. There could be something more here. So that was the spark right off the top that kind of made me think this could be something more than I thought it could be.
0: And there is a surprising sensitivity to that movie too. Like that was like the sort of winning arc of the film. I thought was, you're like, Oh wait, I do feel for these people who have just put themselves in incredibly gross situations. But I was thinking of a through line through a lot of your work and it's that as odd as a character you may be playing or as odd as the situation is, it never shows on your face, like being weirded out, for example. And I was wondering, have you ever played a character or a scene where you actually were weirded out and like needed to get into it and figure out how to make it work? Because you seem like it's impossible to throw you.
1: That's an interesting question. Um, You know, that's what I do is character work. And the idea of grounding these characters and making them uh, as human and um, real as possible, no matter how bizarre some of them might be. Certainly on SCTV, what started out as a kind of a satirical show satirizing television when we started, turned out over the years to be more a character comedy, right? We... The characters that were running SCTV Network were legitimate characters, albeit a bit on the broadside. But we never stepped outside of those characters to get a laugh, and there was never anything tongue-in-cheek uh, about w- what we did, even on even on SCTV. And I tried to kind of maintain that in every uh, project that I've. Uh, been involved with, is just grounding the character, finding the truth, and finding the heart in every character. Has there been one character that kind of confounded me? Oddly enough, I I think A Mighty Wind was the character that I got most frightened of once I started doing it, because in those movies with Chris, you know, there were no rehearsals. You didn't see what anybody was doing until you got on camera for the first time, right? Because Mm. that's the nature of the of those movies. We knew we knew what exposition had to come out in the scene because that's what Chris and I laid out in the script. But how it came out was up to everybody in terms of improvising their role. So we had written this character of Mitch Cohen in A Mighty Wind that was so deep in terms of how disturbed and complex this character was that by the time we started shooting it, I said, oh my God, what a how am I gonna pay this off in terms of what he looks like, what he sounds like, you know? This is a guy that never got over his divorce. He went from being the star of folk music scene to a bitter divorcee that turned to drugs, that became emotionally uh, disturbed, that was in a sanatorium. And by the time we meet him, he's now coming back for a reunion out of the depths of such depression. When I started doing the character, the first day of shooting, I made a choice of going a little more eccentric with the character because I thought that's what it needed but the 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 vibe on set while I was doing it was something I wasn't expecting because nobody was commenting on it. Normally, you know, you'll go to a lunch break or you're on a break and somebody'll say, "Boy, I love what you're doing. You're, this is insane. Did you see the scene that Eugene did just last it was unbelievable." That wasn't happening. <laughs> um and i thought oh my god i think i've made i had the feeling that i've made a horrible mistake that i was going to be the torpedo that's going to take down this movie because of a bad character choice and i you know i just committed to it and as it turned out it did work for the movie mm-hmm. but that was that was a little bumpy off the top for me in terms of how it was coming off
2: i mean a kiss at the end of the rainbow still made me Tear up. So it works beautifully still.
1: That was the scary thing. And that's how you, when you're doing a character comedy, which is what Shit's Creek, we set out to do Mm -hmm. because Daniel wanted that sensibility that we had in those movies, which is create characters that are tangible, create characters that are real, that the audience can really, you know, Mm -hmm. relate to emotionally. And if you can hook them emotionally, then you can take them on a storyline much like the Mitch and Mickey storyline, which the entire movie hinged on. Are they going to kiss at the end of the movie when you're doing a comedy? That's a dangerous way to go. Mm -hmm. You have to have a strong belief that your characters are going to be able to pull it off.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, thank you um, for being here and you are, you're such a great character actor um and oddly enough not a question but last week we had um gene smart on the show uh and this is both of you in bringing down the house bringing down bringing down uh, which i brought up to lewis (laughs) earlier and that is honestly more than american pie one of my favorite movies from that era of my um childhood from high school like i watched that movie maybe every year
1: I owe, I have to say, I, I, uh, I owe a lot of uh, credit on that movie to Queen Latifah because it was Queen Latifah that spoon-fed me those great lines. Uh, you know, there, there were different lines in the script. And hmm. just before I shot the scene, I went to her and I said, I'm not sure about these lines. What do you think? And she said, well, I wouldn't say it. <laughs> I said... I said, what would you say? What would you say here? What would you say? And I got lines like, you know, you got me straight tripping, boo, and I couldn't get to my pant- pad and pencil <laughs> fast enough. Straight tripping, boo. Okay, yes. You know? Um, so, yeah, that was fun. That was fun. It was nice working with uh, – I-, I didn't have a lot to do with Gene. In fact, I don't know whether I had, in- had maybe one scene. I can't remember. But she- yeah. I've been watching her for many years.
2: Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here, Eugene.
1: And good luck at the fucking end. Please win. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We'll see what we can do. That's that's, that's all I can say. We'll see what we can do. (laughs) Thanks, guys.
2: And we're back our favorite segment of the episode as usual it is keep it who's going first hooray lewis or why don't you go first
3: what are you mad about little lewis
0: uh usually on keep it we use this segment to express rage at other people i am gonna say keep it to myself this week for underestimating Ooh,
3: reflexive Let's yeah go. A, new,
0: a new look for me Keep it to myself for underestimating Miley Cyrus, because Um, when I heard she had a new single out, I thought, all right, it'll be fine. We've had a lot of wonderful singles this summer. Won't mean anything to me. Midnight Sky coming in as potentially the best song of the summer out of nowhere. The production gives me that sinister nighttime vibe that you associate with some of uh, future nostalgia, uh, particularly the disco (laughs) ear tracks. This song is so addictive. I was going to get tested at Dodger Stadium for the 50th goddamn time, and I played it the entire time on the way there. And I live in West Hollywood, so that's a long drive. I could not stop playing this song. And then I realized, why was I underestimating Miley Cyrus in the first place? The woman, from a singles perspective, has almost only given us gold. I'm talking way at the beginning with See You Again. First of all, nothing is more gay icon worthy than having a best friend named Leslie. So first of all, (laughs) right there, I was in. Then we got into, you know, the more familiar uh, Miley singles, The Climb. Then we got into Wrecking Ball. These are things that we'll have with us forever. There was a time when she was considered the most controversial pop star. And maybe because that's dissipated, I've underestimated the staying power of her music. But she's only gotten more mature. I loved Mother's Daughter. I loved most of the Banger's album. I think she is just one of our most dependable people, even when she's not covering Jolene and impressing your aunt for the 50th time. Uh, Thank God we're done with the era where people unfamiliar with most pop music have to say, I can't believe she has a wonderful voice. I can believe it. She's always had a good voice. So (laughs) stop brainwashing me with your new observation about her voice. She's so talented and I'm so glad she's back with a great song this summer.
3: I disagree with you only mm. because I do. I will agree that she's a talented person. She has been since out the gate. But her trajectory has been this unreliable sine wave, up and down roller coaster of songs. You cleverly skipped over Miley Cyrus and her dead pets. That whatever we all release. make, we all whatever. make mistakes.
4: Okay, yeah, sure,
3: but. Look, she, did not, she does not consistently give us good things to listen to. She has her bops. She has her bops here and there, but there are a lot of songs to be skipped. But I'm not even happy that I said that because I am a Miley Cyrus fan, but I'm also a fan of fighting Louis Fertel, So <laughs> <laughs> I also love the song
0: Malibu. The album... I'm sorry about that, but the, the song I thought was great.
2: I will say that I do appreciate that she has gotten out of her own tipper gore phase. Because <laughs> my, my <laughs> least favorite Miley trajectory was when she was twerking with Juicy J. Mm. Um, oh yeah, the cutlet, and, and doing the chicken bangers cutlet And face. doing bangers and all this shit. But then yes. later tried to come out and say that like... Hip hop was too sexualized and vulgar and raunchy, and she didn't want to be. Miley, doing that.
3: what's good? Yes, <laughs> Miley, what's good?
2: <laughs> right. She got rightfully dragged, <laughs> mm-hmm. and now I think she's dialed it back, and you know is just being her, you know, raunchy self.
0: What is with raunchy pop stars, pop superstars, who then have this reflective guilt moment, like Prince eventually being like songs with bad words in them are unacceptable. It's Donna like Summer. Like, yeah, Donna Summer. I don't get it at yeah. all. It's like a it's like a guilt thing. I don't know.
2: Yeah. Um. But I really do enjoy this, and it is my second favorite use of Edge of 17.
0: After Bootylicious? Mm. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I solved that right away. Yes. And right above Lindsay Lohan's cover of Edge of 17.
0: Oh, God. I, I, she doesn't quite... <laughs> She doesn't quite have the earthy vocal of a Stevie Nicks. That's what I'll say.
2: (laughs) But you know what? She was being a little more personal, Mm. raw.
3: (laughs)
0: Remember when she had a song where the chorus was I wanna come first? She
3: just said that.
0: Lindsay? Yeah. I think it's
3: fair. I think it's a fair request, Lewis.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know why I'm shaming it. Now now I'm like Donna Summer. Wow. (laughs) Take it back.
3: Double back. Okay, this week. My keep it is a little bit more serious than a Miley Sarah song. Sorry. But uh, my wow. keep it this week. I know. Rude. I didn't mean to be. My keep it goes to uh, the federal government and their total neglect of the United States Postal Service. Another thing that we can add to this fucking laundry list of horrible shit we're dealing with this summer, this year, this maybe lifetime what is going on? I'm trying to go mail things and my blue boxes are only, every blue box in, within a mile or two miles of me is only opening like half an inch. I can't fit packages into it. It's something I've never experienced in my life, of course, in any of our lives. And although we have internet and all forms of communication seem more open than they've ever been, nothing has felt as dystopian and off as not being able to send a fucking letter. So now Democrats, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, are trying to return from their recess early to fight what is an attack on the United States Postal Service. And they're asking the federal government to get a budget approved that is far up in the billions of dollars, but is needed to help bail out the Postal Service. And I just, my mind is blown because USPS is a federal service, albeit self-funded. It's literally intrinsic to being an American. It is a fundamental part of our democratic society, and us having to even argue or talk about it being funded is ludicrous. We're literally groveling for money to keep a service afloat that we need, because our Tupperware stain of a president won't shell out any money, but will gladly give money out to bail-out businesses or bail-out privatized airlines, we're just constantly struggling to show him that we deserve money for things that are non-profit, or not for (sighs) for-profit.
0: Don't you feel like we'll be saddled with some other incredible setback and immediately normalize it? Like, suddenly, next week, we'll all just have one arm tied behind our back. We just have to. Yeah. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Just figure it out from this point on.
2: Uh, Also, not really the point, (laughs) but how often is Congress in fucking recess?
3: They are never working.
2: Spinelli and TJ Detweiler over here, (laughs) like, constantly in recess. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Can we get a schedule? Can we get a schedule please. of like? I feel like every time something's about to happen, it's they're either in recess or have to come back from recess. I'm like, stop taking breaks.
3: And,
0: and by schedule, you mean of Disney's one Saturday morning, correct? Yes.
3: Okay. <laughs> yes. And uh, yeah, give me the itinerary, please. It's just, it's like, and I, I don't need to remind y'all. We are in the middle of a pandemic. It is too mm. difficult to go to an in-person polling place right now, and. It feels like the GOP and the president are trying to take advantage of that. The Postal Service has already warned us now that they cannot guarantee that millions of ballots are going to make it in time for them to count them for the November 3rd election. About 46 states, up to 46 states will be disenfranchised and millions of voters aren't going to get to cast their vote. (sighs) <sighs> I'm hyperventilating thinking about it, thinking about what we're going to have to deal with in the next month, two months. It is
2: helpful to point out that in in the midst of all this going on, um, what you can do is vote early in person. Yes. You can use a ballot drop box and you can drop your ballot off at an election office or polling station. Yes. So you don't have to rely on the mail itself. You know, vote early. Yes, You know, try and get that shit done Early, but it is insane that we're, you know, tweeting about yeah. saving the post office. And because it's just like, it's, it's so wild to me that it's normalized that Donald Trump is cheating. Yes. You know, like it's a thing that is just normalized for us now. And we all realize that we have to fight against that <laughs> because our government doesn't have um, things set up to stop him from mm-hmm. just being a fascist dictator who is spinning out of control. Yes. You would
0: think this message would cross party lines don't vote for the guy who doesn't want you to vote.
3: Dot Exactly.
2: <laughs> right. But in their mind it's oh he doesn't want the non-white people <laughs> to vote. You know? Mm-hmm. So, so they're fine with it. Yeah. It's not until he comes for Granny McKinley's vote that they're going to be angry. <laughs>
3: <you know?
2: laughs> Granny
3: McKinley. <laughs> Recon- yeah. Recognize this is a very blatant Act of voter suppression and do all the things that Ira just told you to do because we got to move and your vote does matter and it's very important. Also,
2: side keep it to the USPS. Um, Girl. I want to support them (laughs) and um, give them some coins, but we need some better merch. Mm. Some of these stamps are ugly. Can we get an Aaliyah stamp?
0: <laughs> We've got to change the rule about you have to be dead to be on a stamp. Because I'm super mad certain things that need to be on stamps aren't. I'm talking about Hillary from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I want yes. her with the bag, um, like with that look on her face like, Daddy, I need
2: $500. That should be on a stamp.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Let's rewrite the last season of the show so that we can kill her off. Then she will right? technically be allowed to be on the stamp.
2: Can we get like an Aaliyah stamp? Oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, Yes. You want a well, whole handbag lick, thing? You're oh. licking it. It's an Alia. <laughs> uh, that'd be a great commercial. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you have to have been dead like five years to be honest. But there are plenty of dead people. Like I said, put Leah on it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Give me someone. <laughs> like, you sh- know, and, and get Who's like dead? get Who's some dead? better sh- get some get some better shirts. Get out some tanks, some crop tops. I don't know. Give
3: the girl something. Draw some sneaks. An asymmetrical cut, something, anything. The pants, the pants need to go shorter or longer. Yes. You need to
2: pick. Give the girl <laughs> something.
0: At this point, you should have the option if you're a postal worker to be a slutty postal worker too. Like there should be like a like a you know a pale blue, uh, skirt, something like that that we could yes. enjoy the summer.
3: The belt should be high waisted. Maybe give them one door. They deserve a door on the car. Mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> My keep it goes to. Um, Scammers and sellers on the internet, you know, mostly in reference to the hottest bag on the market right now, the Telfar bag.
3: Mm. Yes.
2: Now, this is a bag that is black owned, and it is a brand that you know, like you you see people like walking around, you know, with the bag. You know, we recognize the logo. Um, vegan
0: leather bag with a big emblem on it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, you know, and um. There was a drop recently that basically just, like, sold out because scammers and sellers, like, scoop up so much of them and then think that they're going to be able to resell them for, like, a larger price. You know, that shit always happens, unfortunately, with concert tickets, Uh, you know, like, you want to go to your favorite artist, like... My Chemical Romance when they had their reunion tour, you know, like sold out instantly and then you see people selling tickets for like $1,000 each online, you know? It happens with sneakers, you know, every time I try and get like some new Nikes, when those are dropping, you won't get the shoes, but some reseller will have them online within a few hours, right? Like trying to make a profit off of it. And um, it's just about this like accessibility in fashion, which I get it, you know, some things should be exclusive, but some things like Shouldn't be, you know, and particularly in instances with like concerts, you know, and this bag, which Telfar Clemens, the owner, uh, wants for um, fans to have. You know, it's hard that, you know, we're just constantly in this space where um, moments like this get, you know, manipulated and used as a way to scam people. Um, But luckily, Wednesday, they're doing this. Bag security program that is a 24 hour window that allows anyone anywhere to pre order the size and color of their choosing. They pay upfront, including shipping, and then the bags will be delivered between December and January. You know, so that's a way to sort of democratize this. But I don't know how y'all feel about these things because I get it that some things should be exclusive, um, but it's also annoying.
3: <laughs> yeah, boo! That like I I hate a Grailed or the Real Real or a Goat or these like any of these resale sites that these little Fairfax kids live on. These complex junkies that will you like you said snatch everything up and practically scalp them online. And I what I love about Telfar is that they are redefining luxury and they're redefining what it looks like and what exclusivity means and us taking away that inherent value of exclusivity. Yeah. I don't think that that's – that's what I appreciate about the brand. That's why I love the bags. So I, I think this is an amazing way to go, and especially because this the, – the creator, the brand, champions inclusivity. There is no yeah. reason for this to be happening with these bags. So this is a move forward in my opinion. And I'm signing up.
0: <laughs> I want to shout it out for being a black-owned business, as you said before. Yes. There are so many colors of this bag that don't go with my skin. I'm talking about the yellow, the olive. <laughs> so <laughs> many options that aren't for me. You guys should be proud.
3: <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know what Lewis? unironically the white would look very nice on you it you think would, so really would I really do
0: alright mm-hmm. well you've spoken
2: to me and now, you, now I have girl. permission yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, and obviously the true villain at the root of this is capitalism you know because like it's people <laughs> who want to make money like scooping up these things so they can resell it and make more money but then like once you're doing that you're taking it from People who also can't afford much more, and you're price gouging them. So you know it's like, yes, hurt people, hurt, hurt people.
3: <laughs> Profound, but correct, <laughs> correct. Yes. Yes. Don't
2: run towards capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's it's right there. You know you you can say hi to it, but you know you shouldn't go and like kiki at its house.
3: Mm-hmm. Try and stay the night. Bitch. Yeah, go don't home. stay. The, don't <laughs> stay
2: the night. Just like take a selfie with it. Yeah, have a sip and see. With capitalism,
3: mm-hmm. but are you guys even bag girls? I, I don't think I've seen you with a bag.
2: Well, for me, it would be like a carry-on vibe because I've seen the big one. Like, oh yes, I, I, yeah. I, I saw, I saw um, someone um, a few months ago, like at Soho Warehouse, with like a uh, one of the green bigger ones. That's like a tote, and I was like, "That is a vibe for me," you know. Like, but yeah, not not like I'd be carrying it on to any plane anytime soon
3: i know i have nowhere to go uh, nothing to hold
2: but if i pre-order maybe i'll be getting on a plane by january
0: i think they need to start making parasols that's like the universe i'm in right now this summer (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: yeah but i could be a bag lady aida
3: girl i see it for you
2: i see it for you i'm not afraid of hurting my back (laughs) dragging on them bags like that
0: (laughs) god i love her
2: anyway Thanks again to Eugene Levy and Katherine O'Hara for joining us today. We'll see you next week. Keep It is a production of Crooked Media. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our editor is Bill Lance. And Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Our digital team is Nadine Mokonian and Milo Kent. Thank you to Brian Sebel for production support every week.